Um, the church uh, is a microcosm of the wider society um, in terms of diversity, right? Of people, the personalities, people who have like different socioeconomic uh, status and all these things. And um, you know, there are all kinds of people in the like, you know, wider church, uh, you know, not just, we're not simply talking about embrace here, uh, but there are all kinds of people in the church. There are diff different ethnic uh, or educational backgrounds. And, you know, just like at work, uh, there may be, um, you know, a person or two, right, uh, that you have, or, yeah, just that you may have a hard time getting along with. Uh, you know, some people, Maybe some people who may have a really domineering uh, personality, you know, the people who have just my way or highway uh, kind of person, right? Or maybe some of us may have a hard time with, even though they may be at church, some, of peop or some people who have a really radically different view on certain issues. Remember, especially at the peak of uh, you know, COVID, uh, there may, you know, there are people that are kind of the anti-vaxxers, right? And there are people who are like, you know, I, we, I trust in, you know, we trust in, you know, vaccine, right? Um, and so, so there's like, you know, sharp division over, you know, certain issues. Uh, and um, at times, people like that can't really just rub us the wrong way. Uh, some people that may not really communicate well or people that are asking us to do certain things at the last minute, right? And the, all these things can kind of just like make us kind of cringe and kind of we don't really appreciate, right, uh, what that person is doing or saying and, and whatnot. Um, so in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 that we just read today, um, in, in chapter 4, Paul discusses unity and maturity as a twin goals for the church. And one thing, one challenging thing uh, for, for me to, as I just, you know, just kind of pick out these passages, right, uh, and talk about it, it kind of lacks context because I'm just going straight into the, to the, the verses. Um, so, you know, I have to kind of provide uh, some sort of background and, and um, you know, context. So in, even in the passage, uh, the verses that we read, to, to understand the context, uh, in chapter 4, here in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking about what are the goals of the church? What are we aiming for as a church? And he's saying really that unity and maturity are these two twin goals of the church. So if you, um, I think it's on the, on the thing, and verse 2 of chapter 4, it says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Um, it goes on to say, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So as Paul is expounding, the foundation of the church, the nature of the church, it really comes down to the fact that there is 
oneness. Though we may have all different types of people uh, with all the differences that we may have, different opinions and thoughts, what brings us together is the fact that we serve one Lord, one God. God is one. And that should, that's good enough of a reason for us to come together despite all the differences and make us unite, be one in our purpose. That is one goal of the church. The goal is to bring everyone together and based on this foundation that is God, who God is flowing from who God is, the God three in one, that there will be diversity, right? And yet there is unity as well. So there is one goal, and the other is the maturity. Right? In verse 13, it says, until we all, uh, uh, until we all uh, attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that's the other goal. To not only that we are to simply just come together and be one, but the goal of the church is that we would grow through different means, through the preaching and teaching of God's word, through fellowship, through prayers, through serving one another, and reaching out to people from the outside of the church, bring people and form this unified body, and yet that we will not be simply uh, happy with, like, oh, there are people coming in, it's great. Or there is diversity in our congregation. That's great. That's not the only goal. It is to also that we would grow, be firmly rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to grow, to mature to the fullness of Christ, that we would be continuously become more and more like Christ. These are the twin goals of the church. And that's what Paul is talking about. And these are challenging goals, right? How on earth are we going to attain unity and maturity when we look at what we have? At times, it's very difficult. It's a challenging thing. And in fact, the title of the message, Building Up the Church, what does it re- really even mean? What does it mean to build up the church? We may have this like foggy idea of what they may look like, but in reality, this is what Paul is saying. When we say, when we talk about building up the church, it means that we will bring people together, that we may have this one purpose, united purpose, to bring glory to Christ, honor God in our lives, and to really just be one in the Lord. That we, people will know, the world will know that we are Christians by the love that we share with one another. So being one, united in our purpose. And also building up the church means that we would do all we can so that we will mature, that we will not be satisfied with just having diversity or different people in the church, but that we would grow. That's what it means to build up the church. So the building up the church is a really serious call in everyone's, uh, to, to every Christian. 
You know, it's easy to love the lovable people, but loving those who are not is an entirely different story. How delightful would our lives be if, you know, we, uh, that, that, uh, that if our churches are just filled with just really pleasant and really people that are really compliant, people who would just like do whatever we ask them to do, right? That would be such a delightful thing. But even those people that we may count on, or people that are really delightful, people that are very compliant, will let us down at some point because they are human. They're not golden retrievers. They're people with their own mindset, different backgrounds. As long as we live in this fallen world, there will be struggles, tensions, and conflicts. And just as um, Pastor Jay prayed, Look at what's going on um, out in, um, in, in Israel and, and, and Hamas. Uh, not going to go into all the details because I'm not an expert or anything, but you can just see it's just an unending violence. And there's even just a background, even to the way how it even happened, right? And there's just all these different... Uh, ways to look at it and the, the history behind it and all. It was just very interesting. Uh, one of my coworkers, uh, she is from Pakistan, and so she gave her perspective uh, on the whole conflict. Uh, she calls it conflict yet. Um, some people call it war, and I guess with the, the impending ground invasion, I don't know any other way we can look at it, right? Um, but there is always... And it's just not looking at Ukraine and, and, and Russia or, or, or what's going on in the world. Just even in, in our church or even at work, there's always this struggle, tensions, and conflicts. And Paul is, so in, in the earlier part of chapter 4, he's just laying down this foundation, right? That the church, our goal is to unite and to that all the members will grow together. Not one person will be left behind, but to grow together. The foundation is God. And, and then he, in the later, latter part of, of chapter 4, he's talking about application of that truth. Not only does he simply just talk about you know, the, the, what's, what's a foundational truth, but he also gives us ways for us to, so, okay, knowing that building up the church means to unite, uh, to bring unity, and to really grow, uh, help people grow. But he's also giving us practical application of the truth. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So in, the, in these two verses, uh, he's saying these are ways, practical ways to build up the church where tensions and conflicts are really the part of the reality the first thing that he brings up is he's uh, mentioning the need for introspection. Verse 31, reminding, once again, as Pastor Jay said, God is sovereign, right? He is in control, and he will direct and steer the church because this is his church. He's the foundation. He's the head. But as his people, then how are we to follow his lead? And Paul is giving us a couple uh, um, ways 
to build up the church. And first is the need for introspection. In verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. It's strange that Paul mentions a need for some sort of like a self-analysis, especially when the focus right here is on the community, right? What is he really talking about? And I'm not promoting self-therapy techniques or anything of that nature, but we need to honestly look at ourselves, right? What we are, how we are doing. What are our, some of the things that we, uh, that we need to really work on? You would expect Paul to talk about some relationship building uh, skills. Maybe, hey, you know, for us to really just bring unity, quickly identify some common interests. Or maybe he would talk about how we ought to really listen to each other well, right? Listen. Or how to break the ice in a group setting and all these kind of things. But that's not what he's talking about. I mean, what does really self-evaluation have anything to do with, anything to do in a church setting? What's it got to do with building up the church? Apparently, a lot. Being self-aware is an important element, according to Paul, of building up the church. You know, ramming through, uh, ramming through people or domineering people for a set goal however noble it may seem, would be a mistake. It will really uh, undermine or hinder the unity and the maturity and therefore the building up of the church. Many of us know um, Mark Driscoll. He, he was a founding pastor of this church out in Seattle called Mars Hill. He, was, uh, he didn't grow up in a, in a Christian setting, but you know, uh, and he, he was... Uh, he was converted, and he became uh, a, a, this pastor, and he was such a, like a celebrity pastor. People, like, you know, in, out in Seattle, it's like um, there is many, like, viable churches um, because, you know, people there are pretty, like, you know, whenever there's a nice sunny day, everybody's out, right? And, you know, things like that, and uh, it's, it, it's, uh, it's considered a really difficult place to minister to and really build up the church, but he had success building up this church, turned into a mega church, and he drew a lot of attention because he was very outspoken um, and he had a very strong personality, and there were a lot of people that were really drawn to that kind of charisma that, uh, that he uh, displayed. So a lot of people flocked uh, to Mars Hill. But over the, over, the, over the years, there's been some, some like, you know, controversy and people that were just kind of leaving the church and eventually, he was um, basically, yeah, he, he had to step down. And a lot of charges that were brought up against him was how he was such a domineering force that he just would not tolerate anybody who would uh, disagree with him, right? And he would even just fire people right on the spot, right? Maybe um, even ask some elders who would bring up concerns that ask them to even step down from their, from their post, right? And... So even though they had a really just great, um, I mean, just from the outside, looked really great. And yet, they really, um, in the inside, a lot of things were happening in the church. You know, I've seen people in the church, you know, trying to get things done without regard 
to how that would hurt the very people that they are trying to serve. I've seen those. How do I know? Because I was one of them. Right? When I was um, straight out of uh, seminary, I went to this uh, large youth group uh, as a youth pastor. And then um, one of the things that I, 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 even to this day, if I think about it, I just squirm of what I've done. It's basically the, the praise leader would come and, you know, in, in, the, in the, the beginning of the, the, the praise time, he would uh, kind of make some comments, right? Um, so, you know, pers- personally, I wasn't too thrilled with that because as a praise leader, he should lead praise. But then he would kind of talk about, I know you guys are not doing well today. And so he was kind of projecting. Maybe he had a bad week or something, and he was projecting to other people. And um, I was serving with an education pastor at the time, and he said, man, you know, he's got to really tone down what he's saying. He's like kind of projecting how he's doing upon the people and just bringing the whole people, uh, the whole congregation down. And so as soon as I hear that, heard that, I just went straight to the praise leader, right? And I said, hey, you need to, you really need to just work on, you know, what you are saying in front of other people, right? And that's, I, I thought I was telling me like it, like, like it is. Um, but the thing was, I said it in a very um, not tactful way. I think he was really hurt by that, right? There wasn't any compliment or anything, thank you for serving, none of that. I just went straight to him and said, hey, you need to just change right, right away. Um, and then right, he just like stepped down. Uh, he basically said, I'm done with this, right? And he left the church and I said, okay. Right? I didn't follow up with him or anything because I, I, you know, I told him the truth. Uh, he should, she should, be, should have been able to take it, right? So, um, so all of that happened because I lacked wisdom and understanding and also my flaws because my insecurity at the time drove me to, uh, to really just react that way because the, whatever the feedback that I got from the education pass, I, oh, I got, you know, I'm straight out of seminary. I got to prove my worth. Right? I have to prove that I am in charge or like I, I, I have to project. I just had that, that, the need to project, like decisiveness, right? As a leader, you have to be decisive. So I, was, I, I thought, okay, for me to really be, to show people that I'm a decisive person, even though I'm straight out of seminary, fresh off, you know, the, the theological training, I have, to see, I have to look really strong and decisive. So I just went straight to him and just said all the stuff that I said. I was out to prove myself and my worth. I didn't understand at that time how my issues, especially as a leader, would negatively impact people, other people in the church. And that's only one small tip of an iceberg. You could only imagine, right, at the time. Just telling some of the students, just yelling at them, and oh boy. Um, So I did a lot of damage, to be honest with you, as I look back. I had, I had very little knowledge um, about relating to students as a pastor. Yes, of course, you know, I wanted to serve God, right? I wanted to really just um, serve him well, but there was this, this urge in me to, sh- to show people, right, that I was a good pastor. And whatever the, the image or of, uh, and thought of a, what a good pastor should look like, I had that image. And I was just like so right, ready to just show that to people. Seminary training, as important as it is, doesn't really prepare, prepare you for that. I mean, 
Seminary uh, training, I don't know about Pastor Jay, uh, it's a seminary, but my seminary, it was all about how to exegete, how to study, and how to, you know, study the original language and what it means and providing context and how to prepare for message and all these things, but they never talked anything about, hey, you need to also just look at what you, what you are going through, what your issues are. They, they didn't really prepare me for that. This world also does not address it. What it really cares about is, what have you done for me lately? Right? Isn't that what this world is also about? And I was uh, actually watching a, this documentary about the, in a YouTube, uh, in a, the, the very first head of the, uh, the Korean CIA, right? And this guy was, um, so in the background, in the, back in the, um, the 60s, uh, uh, after President Park became uh, the president, and then one of his loyal followers became the head, and they, he, he created uh, the Korean version of CIA, and he was so loyal, and he did whatever it took to serve his master, right, to serve his boss, and he did the things that were not legal, right, and in today's standard, the, the things that he's, uh, just uh, the human rights issues was just horrendous. But one day, got to a point where he was just told that he was no longer, his service was needed. So after all those years of backing him up, you know, covering him, and he was taking matters into his own hands for his boss, right, he was gone. He, he was taken out. He was basically just asked to be, he was stripped of his power. And then so he came to the United States and he started, he got so mad at his old boss. And he was saying all these different things, and eventually he disappeared. I mean, there's a theory of, uh, I mean, seeing what happened, but uh, what happened to him. Um, but anyways, that, that's the, the reality of the world. Like, we oftentimes, people, the, the, our employers may look at us and say, what can you do for, uh, for our uh, organization? You know, how productive, how indispensable are you? to our company or to our organization? That is often the driving question for a lot, of, uh, a lot of the workplaces. The end justifies the means kind of mindset. It's rampant in this world. As long as you produce the results that, that, that they want, that you are good, you are in good place. But you're not, you're out, right? But the church is simply not to be run by the, the utilitarian principle, right? That the idea of like, if it works, and if it produces results, then it is good. It is fine. That's a utilitarian uh, mindset. But that's not how the church should run. It should be run, right? Only the biblical principles must be upheld, even though they may not produce results, visible, immediate results right away. As long as we are to employ and to live by biblical principles, that's what we are to, uh, to, to live by. Not by this, oh, because it works, it must be good, let's continue in it, kind of thing. How each member relates to one another is crucial to the unity and the edification of the church. So verse 31 you know, describes vice. To be put, a, put away from from each, uh, each of us, and also as well as also the, the church. Let all bitterness, wrath, 
anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. All these things, how are you, how are you going to, how are we going to crucify them? How are we going to put them away? Right? Unless we acknowledge their existence in the first place. You know, when I counsel people, the toughest people to counsel are the people who are in denial. I'm just trying to just talk to them and just kind of talk about what, what, what I see in them and things. But if they are saying, no, no, I, I don't have that issue, right? They're, like, their marriage is in shambles. But then say, hey, how is your marriage? Fine. I'm doing, we are doing fine, right? And if I just point th- those things out, they'll be like, no, 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 that's not us. Or like, that's not what, you know, that's not what's really happening. People that are in denial, right? People do not realize, people who do not have this awareness of what's going on in their own lives, in their marriage, or wherever else, in, in other relationships, right? There's so much you can do because they are in denial. They don't know. If you don't even admit it's a, it's a problem, you're not going anywhere with that, right? So here, it says, when it says, let all bitterness and all, you know, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander, malice, all these things. By the way, this does not mean it's exhaustive. It means representative, right? It means, oh, only those things we need to work on and the outside of it is fine. No, it's just representative of what we need to work on. So first, for us to really just build up, build up the church, one of the things that Paul talks about is to let these things be put away. So take time to examine yourself before lashing out at other people or see if there's anything that may cause division or, uh, or if there's anything that's inflicting pain on other people at church. Right? We need to understand what we have, what we are going through, what we are like. Fractured relationships and disregard of these, men, uh, these mentioned here will give the enemy the stronghold to tear the church apart. Yet, I have yet to see a church thriving when there is bitterness, there is anger, you know, just slander, gossip, and all these things. They may look uh, impressive on the outside, but they may be rotting away on the inside. How we are to, as we try to build up the church, we also have to have a good understanding of what we are, who we are. Right? What are some things that we need to watch out for? What are some, some things that we need to really work on? And the second thing uh, that, uh, that Paul talks about in terms of how, practically speaking, uh, to really build, a church, build up the church is found in verse 32. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Love is, I, I said it, uh, the power of tender love. Pa- uh, love is multidimensional. There is definitely that tough love, right? The, the, the aspect of love where we, because we care for that person, we discipline, right? Discipline that person. Or, you know, there is a need, there's an occasion because out of love for that person who is going through destructive path to really uh, be firm with those people. Grace and I, we uh, talk about uh, you know, her, her classroom kids and you know, how she needs to be, especially at the beginning of the year, she needs to be firm because they always push the boundary. How far can they get away 
get away with, right? So they always try to just kind of feel it out and just see the boundaries. You need to be like firm. So there is that tough love. Then there is tender love. I'm not talking about a warm, fuzzy feeling kind of thing. But because tender love has this touch-feely uh, connotations, people think that it is soft. It's weak. Tough love, just by the sound of it, right, portrays this rigor and determination. But tender love, it conveys an image of being really like being mild, being squishy. Right? However, tender love, the scripture speaks of, is nothing like that. It is powerful. It has this, uh, the, 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 uh, it, it has this um, uh, strength, and it, it has strength to transform people. So Paul here says, be kind to, each, uh, to one another. Treat each other with gentleness and respect. Proverbs chapter 15, 4 says this. If you can turn to that, yeah. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness, perverseness in it breaks the spirit. It's how we also even just speak to one another. It's very important, important. Be kind to one another and be tender-hearted. You know, in this dog-eat-dog uh, -dog kind of world that we live in, few people are actually respected. Not many people are really respected by one another. A lot of people are considered disp uh, dispensable. Right? If you don't produce, if you don't bring us the result, you may be on the chopping block. And that's what we're used to at work and in life. But the church is to counter that and be radically different. Being tender-hearted, what does that even mean? What does it mean to be tender-hearted? It means to instill hope and instill life. So we are to, when we, uh, when we are being tender-hearted, we are to speak truth and in love and speak and instill hope and speak life into each other. We are to give each other a vision of what that person can be, not where that person is, or not pounding on what's wrong with each other. We're not to be demeaning or harsh with one another. Seek to understand and give each other a second chance. Instead of being, seeking to be understood, seek to understand and be gracious. And here, he talks about Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. So Paul talks about how the, 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 the essential element of building up the church is forgiveness. The Bible says, love keeps no record of wrongs. And that's a very important uh, part that we have to understand when it comes to forgiveness. Not keeping record of wrongs. You know, when we are hurt, when we are offended by someone, an organization, even a church, people, what we end up doing is we repeat it in different ways. We repeat it relationally 
as a weapon because we are hurt by it. So, you know, the hurt people hurt others. So because of the hurt, right, we kind of inflict pain on other people. For me, like when I am stressed at work, or when I get frustrated with people, guess what happens? It's not fair to Grace, but she gets the brunt of it. I am like kind of so stressed at work or things, and then it just, I just erupt or just take it out on Grace at times because I am so stressed. Right? It's just not fair. Sometimes, also when we are hurt, we rehearse it in our minds. And what happens is that we keep playing it, rehashing it in our mind time and again. So what happens is the resentment builds up. You know, the bitterness, resentment builds up. It is self-destructive. It is an emotional suicide. Because when we hold on to the grudge that has happened in the past, we are not hurting that, per- hurting that person, right? who's done that, we are actually hurting ourselves. In fact, we are allowing them to continue to hurt us, not only in the past, but in the present. If you think about it, how that's just not, you know, that, that it's, we are hurting ourselves. What happened in the past is controlling us as we rehearse it, as we are being just engrossed in it. Because we just can't get out of the pain and the hurt. It will only perpetuate the pain. It never brings healing. It never solves anything. So as radical as it is, I I mean, I I hear all these things about the relationship between Hamas and, and Israel, right? They always go back to the past, right? And they cannot seem to get out of it. Studies show that whatever that we rehearse, we begin to resemble. Whatever that we, most, uh, we uh, think most about is what we move towards. If all we think about is how, how much we've been hurt in the past, that we are moving to the past, and we'll end up living in the past. Have you ever seen people that are kind of just living in the past what's happened in the past, and that's all they talk about and focus on, because that's all they talk and think about. If we focus on the future, then we move toward the future. If we focus on God's promises, then we move toward what he promised. That's why we are to meditate on the word of God every moment of our lives so that we can move towards the promises of God. If we focus on our pain or the wrongdoings that other people have done to us, we are moving towards that pain. You see, but with the enablement that comes from the Holy Spirit, we are to stop being preoccupied by it. Love lets it go. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Some people, they don't really just let go of their hurt. But interestingly and paradoxically, they subconsciously embrace the pain because it is far easier for them to blame that person, right, than to really face the painful reality 
of what's really happening to them. They don't want to face it. It's just far too difficult to face what's really the reality, what is really happening. So they would rather not face that, so they actually embrace, they live in pain, they actually secretly, as, as uh, contradicting as it may sound, they kind of, they wouldn't let it go. They hold on to it because then they can have always, have someone that they can always blame. So they take the easy way out and blame other people. They will not let it go. And that, in turn, kills all the relationships that that person may have. So forgiveness starts by facing it, however difficult it is. Of course, I understand it's easier said than done. I've had some issues, too, in my life, really trying to forgive someone, people that have really hurt me real bad. Like the people that didn't really hurt me, it's, it's far easier, but there are people that really hurt me, right? Those people, it's really hard. So I remember uh, one of us um, was asking, is forgiveness really, you know, I'm, I'm trying, I know what it, uh, what it says, I'm trying, but it is so hard. Is forgiveness a, uh, is, is a process? I said, yes, it is a process. You can't just all of a sudden, right, depending on the severity of the, of the hurt and the uh, injury that the person has inflicted on you, you can't just like, you know, just in your mind, say, oh yeah, I forgive that person and so I'm done, I'm fine. It doesn't happen like that, right? So it is a process where you have to constantly look to God to, uh, to, to, to give you strength and to be reminded of the gospel. Remember, love keeps no record of wrongs. And isn't that what God has done for us through Christ? We all were just really hell-bent on rebelling against God, seeking our own, own independence from Him. I don't need God. I am my own God. I want to call my own shot. I don't, I don't want the Bible to tell me, you know, what to, what to do and what to say and how to behave. I want to do things my way. But while we are yet enemies of God, he sent his only begotten son. And the son took our, play, took our place and received the father's wrath that we should have received. Infinite God was infinitely offended by our rebellion. But through the sacrifice of uh, Jesus Christ, he forgave us. And now the good news is that he does not hold, hold us to that. Can you imagine if he was like still holding to that? He keeps the record of all the wrongs that we have done. But oftentimes we do that. We uh, just like open up the wounds and rehash whatever that, that we try to just sock away and just put it away. And when another uh, occasion comes, the hurt comes back again. And we just reopen the, the dirty laundry and the trash bag and rehash it. Just rehearse it over and over again without letting it go. But the tender love demonstrates the real power through forgiveness. And that's how we can really build up the church. Paul says, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. The foundation. We cannot try to just forgive on our own strength. We can't. 
we're human. But when we turn to him, asking God, I need your strength and power. Help me as we are being reminded of the gospel. What Christ has done for us, what God has accomplished for us through his son, the Holy Spirit who indwells us will give us the power and the enablement to extend forgiveness and grace to one another. That's how we can bring everyone together. That's how we can really allow not only ourselves, but people, that all the people in church can grow as we experience grace, not only in our words, but in our, through our actions. So may that be our um, understanding as we seek to build up the church, that we will look to, to, to the Lord uh, for strength and guidance and do, the, do these things. And that's what we are called to do. Let's go before the Lord and let's pray.